So welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Gary On to this podcast. Dr. On is a senior fellow, associate professor in the Department of Surgery, Section of General Surgery at the University of Chicago. Dr. On, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks for having me. So I know that you're widely recognized for your pioneering work in computational modeling of inflammation. Perhaps you can share a little bit of your work in this regard. Sure, happy to. As may be evident from my list of appointments, I'm both a clinician and acting practicing surgeon as well as a computational biologist, someone who does modeling and simulation of biomedical processes. The majority of my training was in the area of trauma, and my current role is as the co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit, so I have an interest in critical illness, which in many ways is the most dramatic manifestation of disordered systemic inflammation. My interest in this particular area stems back from when I was a junior attending at Cook County Hospital in the trauma unit there, where I was seeing patients who had suffered acute injury, and we had some idea about what was going on with them, but had no way to actually manipulate the underlying biology that was causing them to become ill. It was around that time that the first cycle of failed anti-cytokine, anti-mediator trials came out for sepsis, which led to a bit of an existential crisis in the sepsis inflammation community. It was from that point in time that I started looking around at other areas of research that were dealing with problems of similar complexity with disordered inflammation and complex systems like that. So that investigation on my part led me to look at the Santa Fe Institute, which is a center for complex system studies and their associated interest in using modeling and simulation as a means of gaining insight into the behavior dynamics and hopefully eventual control of these complicated dynamical systems. So you create models of inflammation. How do you your colleagues use those models? Models have multiple uses extending from the initial modeling process which gains understanding into the state of the knowledge about a particular process, the replication of certain behaviors seen in the real world through computer simulations allows further insight into the actual dynamics and driving processes that govern those particular systems. And finally, we are developing models as a potential pathway towards developing in silico or in the computer clinical trials of punitive interventions with the idea of increasing the efficiency of the testing of potential therapeutics. So the testing of potential therapeutics, I think I understand well. I think I understood you to say in your preceding comments that you could perhaps predict the cause of some particular type of acute disease or response based on models. Predict might be a little bit strong of a term. I would say understand, uh, gain insight into those particular processes. 
it may sound like a relatively low bar at one level, but I think it behooves us to remember that most of our understanding of how biology works, particularly in the biomedical arena, comes through very indirect means, be it sparse and not particularly controlled analysis of existing clinical information, as well as the use of highly engineered biological proxy models that are used in basic science. If someone is in your care with some type of an acute injury, I understand that you could use these tools to give you some insight into what the particular therapy might be best prescribed? Unfortunately, we're not at that stage yet where the models are of sufficient resolution to give us that degree of clinically relevant behavior. Rather, the use of the models we have are to give us fundamental insights into how these systems actually work and then can provide a potential rational path towards understanding how we can potentially manipulate these systems. So let me take a step back for a second. No one doubts that the practice of clinical medicine these days is incredibly complicated, that the patients represent multiple different comorbidities and conditions that we can't actually see. While the improvement in assay technology, imaging technology, and the various types of omics, genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, or microbeomics give us an unprecedented degree of insight into what a particular snapshot of a patient is, the ability to extrapolate behavior from those snapshots becomes exponentially more difficult with the greater degree of information we have at each particular time point. Therefore, in order to have some idea about what's going to happen next, we need to step back and gain some fundamental understanding as to how biological processes actually function. So let me give you an example from another field. What we would actually like to be able to do is to forecast how patients are going to behave. Right? We want to be able to see them at one particular point in time and then through some modeling process project how that patient is going to behave in the future. And when we mention the word forecasting, obviously the concept of weather forecasting comes about. Now, weather forecasting in the old days, you know, 50 years ago, meant an extrapolation from similar conditions to what was going to happen today with the attendant imprecision from a correlative process. Modern meteorology, however, utilizes highly sophisticated numerical simulations linked to extremely high-resolution and multi-source data collection to feed those particular simulations. And that's what we would like to eventually move towards in the field of medicine. However, those numerical simulations work in meteorology because we know what the driving principles are that govern fluid dynamics, physics, etc., the processes that operate on the variables that we see. No such generative laws exist for medicine. And that is why, at this point in time, medicine, biomedicine, doesn't operate at the same degree of resolution as a quantitative science actually does. 
So my primary underlying goal is to develop pathways by which sequentially and iteratively refined simulations of the mechanisms that are identified at the basic science level can be integrated together and improved to a point where they achieve some degree of trustworthiness that they can be treated as generative laws for these eventual future sophisticated prognosticating forecasting simulations. The identification of those types of generative laws is the only way that formal engineering approaches can be used to engineer therapies in a rational and directed sort of way. That's a very helpful explanation. Thank you. So let me ask, you used the weather forecasting, whether there's good data to support the model. Am I to assume that the data to support the medical models is data we already have, or is, will there be new sources of data? It will certainly require new sources of data, because while we have made significant improvements in the breadth of the type of data that we can gather at a particular time, we recognize that human beings and human health is a dynamic process. And what a person can look like at one point in time can rapidly change minutes, hours, days, or weeks later. And where biological and biomedical data is very, very sparse is in sequential time series data. So weather forecasting works because those numerical simulations get very rapid feeds of new data to update the trajectories that they have. So for instance, we are very familiar with the tracking of hurricanes over time and the projections of where hurricanes are going to hit. Well, we know that that hurricane is actually moving very quickly, but there are multiple paths that that hurricane might be able to take. And when we see these things on the TV, there's this possibility cone that is in front of the hurricane that shows where it might actually go. Well, as new information comes in about atmospheric conditions, the projection of where that hurricane is going to go becomes much more refined. That is what we actually need to do for patients. This is particularly true in critical illness where patients can change on a minute-by-minute basis, but it is also applicable to patients undergoing chemotherapy as the tumors alter themselves to in response to chemotherapeutic agents or the management of chronic diseases where the manifestation of comorbidities may arise and change the underlying dynamics of whatever disease process is going on. So there needs to be a concurrent improvement in sensor technology to allow more rapid updating of the large data streams that are necessary for us to do true precision forecasting for medicine. So you spoke to some of your colleagues earlier today about precision medicine. Is that in fact what you just shared with us now? It is very much a part of that particular idea. The concept of precision or personalized medicine in some ways is a misnomer because of course that is what we have done in the past. Right? Any patient who sees a particular doctor, that doctor looks at that patient and tries to craft a particular care plan specific to that particular individual and take into account what has worked and what has not worked in the past. That is precision and personalized medicine. 
What we'd actually like to be able to do, however, is increase the quantitativeness of those particular processes, right? Because previously we relied upon the art of medicine or the expertise of the practicing physician. With the increased ability to obtain data about individual patients, we would like to be able to have a similarly quantifiable approach towards crafting specific interventions to specific people based on their individual conditions. So what is the state of the art and what's your forecast for the future? Well, currently the primary goals of both the Personalized Medicine Agenda and the Precision Medicine Initiative are focused on identifying subgroups of patients that have different outcomes and may or may not be responsive to existing therapies, which is a very admirable task. The primary focus of the Precision Medicine Initiative is in the area of cancer and on molecular subtyping of types of tumors and trying to identify those subtypes that have been seen to be particularly responsive to different combinations of existing therapeutics. I think there's a certain amount of promise in that area that's already been demonstrated at smaller scale studies. However, I think that if we were actually to try and move towards true precision medicine, which is the personalization and design of therapies to individuals, we need to be able to shift from a pattern-oriented population subgrouping strategy, which is what the current state of the art is, towards a system more akin to that, as I alluded to in the weather area, where there's a concurrent development of models and simulations that can add the dynamics to those particular data streams. The historical emphasis in the biomedical community has focused on the data-centric approaches and the correlative strategies, which at some level is reasonable because we will kind of need to understand what it is we're actually dealing with. To date, the same degree of attention and support that has been provided towards the modeling and simulation community has not approached that that has been applied to data analysis. Our hope is that with improving demonstrations of the need of this particular workflow and other examples as had been provided by Dr. Vodovitz in his presentation this morning would increase awareness of the importance and the criticality of this particular part of the biological research endeavor and uh, lead to developments at a faster pace. What's your forecast for the state-of-the-art in five years? Very difficult for me to say. I think we're still fighting the battle of making people understand that the purely data-centric approaches will not solve all the problems that we want. I started doing this about a little bit over 15 years ago. And at that time, there were no models of the type that I make in the area of systemic inflammation, sepsis, and rarely if one or two maybe in biomedical research at all. This is agent-based modeling. Agent-based modeling was 
not viewed as a serious method back then, and trying to break through embedded thought patterns within the established academic arena is a very, very difficult thing to do. The only thing that can work is success. So now, 15 years later, agent-based modeling is a well-accepted and, and rapidly increasing method of simulating biomedical systems, so much so that the vast majority of projects submitted to the NIH's Multiscale Modeling Consortium involve agent-based models. I couldn't have predicted how long it was going to take. You have to have a certain amount of faith in the fundamental correctness of the approach, and the hope is that things will move along in some way to demonstrate that future correctness. Five years, quite frankly, is probably too short a time for any sort of clinically relevant, certainly any sort of clinically relevant outcomes to arrive. I think it's more along the lines of a, a paradigm shift a la Thomas Kuhn to how people view biological systems and biological research. That's probably the best that we can hope for. Even that's a very promising outcome. So Dr. Ron, there's certainly a lot of different approaches out there in terms of modeling and medical therapeutic procedures. Is the work that you're doing offer any hope of unifying some of those issues and areas? Uh, yeah, I think that is actually the primary goal of my current research agenda is to provide some means by which we can unify a discrete, disparate, and siloed biomedical research community. You have cancer researchers, you have sepsis researchers, you have aging researchers, you have chronic inflammation researchers, and the fact of the matter is that they're all studying various aspects of the possible behaviors associated with human beings. The one thing that we know about human disease is they affect humans, and therefore there is some commonality there that must be captured in our representation of those systems. This translational problem bedevils the transition from preclinical experimental models to the clinic and also represents the primary dilemma of separating heterogeneous groups of patients. So the hope is that models representing fundamental shared principles that are involved in governing a biological behavior can serve as binding agents that are able to link knowledge obtained at one biological level and a biological platform to another. That way, not everything becomes its own thing, which has a very strong legacy in the study of biology with its focus on characterization and distinction between one thing and another. Right? The fact is that they're all similar in some sort of way, and the use of quasi-mechanistic dynamic computational models as a means of bringing these particular behaviors together, I think, is probably one of the biggest insights that could be gained for the research community. That would certainly be a marvelous accomplishment if it could be realized. 
Dr. Hahn, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insight and your pioneering research. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. We encourage input at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com and I thank the McGowan Institute for sponsoring this podcast series. Until we meet again on another podcast, best wishes.